The Trunk Monkey, a revolutionary idea you'll only find at Suburban Auto Group. Pending approval by Attorney General. All right, back in the trunk. All right. How many of you have seen one of these commercials before? There are probably 30 of them or more. How many of you thought that, really did think that was funny? Okay, how many of you didn't get it? Okay, you won't admit it. The thing that makes it funny is you really can't have a monkey live in your trunk. Okay, just so, just to fill you in on the joke if you didn't quite get that, all right? But, um, yeah, we're in this series. We're going to end the series today, in fact, uh, called Keep Your Love On. And in this series, we've been talking about how to have relationships, how to have healthy relationships, how to have loving relationships. And when we talked about that, that, that term, that phrase, keep your love on, uh, you could think of like keeping a hat on or keeping a coat on or a sweater on. But really, what, what that phrase is referring to is like the power source, turning the lights on. So you flip the lights on and you leave the room and you say, hey, keep the lights on. Leave the power flowing so the light stays. And so the whole thrust of this series has been uh, really how to connect with God in a way that, that maintains a flow of his life into us and through us so that we can relate to other people on the basis of love. And as uh, we look at this little video, uh, one of the key things we've talked about was the idea that, that some people just feel like they are victims in life. They feel like they're, all of their relationships are based on things that are beyond their control. And they don't feel like they have any decision-making authority in their lives. And so showing this video, uh, basically the thrust, the, the point of that is, wouldn't it be nice if you just had a button to push? Wouldn't it be nice if when you end up in some relational snafu or conflict or just a relationship that is uncomfortable, you can just push a button and somebody else would swoop in and rescue you. That someone else would just jump into the picture and fix all of the problems. And the the problem with that is it, it puts us in kind of like a powerless position. And that's one of the things that we've talked about in this series, that there are powerful people who are people who understand that they have decisions to make in life. They'll make those decisions and then they will live with their decisions and deal with the results of them. But then there are powerless people who view themselves always as the victim, that they don't have any real decision-making ability in life. They never have choices. They would say things like, what did you expect me to do? What was I supposed to do? They were standing right there saying, come and do this with me. And you wanted me to tell them no to their face. That's kind of like a powerless person's type of thinking. And a powerful person would not have any problem saying, hey, can't go do that. In fact, I have this to do right now. And so we talked about the difference between the two, powerful and powerless, and you know, in our culture, so often we think of powerful people as being people that run over other people. And we don't mean it that way at all. It's not like getting your way all the time or anything like that. Being a powerful person is a matter of knowing what your life is about, not being afraid that other people might dislike you or they might not understand, and living your life 
in relationship with Jesus and making decisions in relationship with Jesus that move you ahead with him and not worrying about pleasing every other person around you. Powerless people have a real hard time with that. You remember the, um, the, the terms passive-aggressive and passive-aggressive. How many remember that? Remember the message a few, few uh, months ago? A passive person basically is saying, you count, I don't count. And so, so often in the Christian thinking, that, that's viewed as godliness. You know, I'm being selfless. I don't count for anything. It's all only what you want. It's the restaurant you want to go to. It's the movie you want to watch. It's what you want to do with our time. And, and, and I would feel like guilty or like I was violating some spiritual truth if I ever asserted myself in saying, here's what I would like to do. So that, that, um, that passive that passive passivity is part of the victim the victim mentality but then we saw also that there are people that are aggressive and these people their thinking is i count and nobody else does and so of course i should get my way i don't even think they think this i mean if you ever encounter an aggressive person i'm, I'm not sure that they go around thinking all these people don't count and only my opinion counts i, I don't i don't think they actually think that but that's kind of the effect of it is that they are not bashful at all in very, very aggressively asserting their will and their desire. And so that person says, I count and you don't. But then there's the passive aggressive person who flips back and forth from one to the other. And, uh, and the passive aggressive person says, you count. And then there's a pause. And then they say, no, you don't. They say, you're okay, and then there's a pause, and then they say, no, you're not. And so the passive-aggressive person is, is a person that's kind of wounded at a heart level, and, and, and they, they live like a victim, but they have these moments of clarity uh, where their emotions rise up, and they say, wait a second, that wasn't right. But while they're in the midst of it, they're agreeing to it, but then when they walk away, they say, that person took advantage of me. Now, all of us can see ourselves in all of these, can't we? I mean, I can see myself in all three of these in different settings at at different times. The thing we want to do is we don't want to live in any one of these three realms. We want to learn to live outside any one of these three, in one of these three ways, passivity or aggressiveness or passive aggressiveness. And, and I'm going to try to talk today about how we can do that. But before we do, uh, do you remember the triangle? And since this is the last message, I wanted to draw some of these things back to our uh, remembrance. Remember the, the uh, triangle, right there it is. All right, so you have the victim at the bottom. You have the bad guy. Bad guy can be a person. It can be an event. It can be some situation in life that happens. Something that is bringing pressure and difficulty into the life of the victim. The victim doesn't believe they have the ability to confront or to deal with the problem that the bad guy brings. So what they're looking for is a rescuer. And the rescuer thinks it's their job to save victims. And so the idea that I want a trunk monkey and I want to push a button and have that trunk monkey jump out 
and solve my problems, uh, that, that's kind of like a victim mentality. And, and, and it is me viewing myself as too weak to deal with the situation, too incompetent to deal with the situation. And so if you're willing to step in and deal with it for me, man, I'll welcome you. Come on, because th- that affirms then my victimization. But as well, some people really want to be rescuers. That's what they live for. And um, they, they find their meaning and their purpose, and, and somehow they get reaffirmed by saving other people and by rescuing other people. But the problem with all of this is that when we rescue other people, and what I mean by that is you keep reminding your teenage child to do their homework until they finally scratch it out and get it done. Or you feel like it's your duty to uh, tell the person that you work with that, that they need to clean up their desk area. And you keep at them and keep at them and keep at them until they finally do it. Or, or that, that you're going to uh, wake your spouse up so they're not late for an appointment when they are chronically late. And they knew they had the appointment and they just didn't set their alarm or they haven't figured out a way yet to have their alarm, alarm actually wake them up. And so all these things can be like rescuing people, whether it is doing something for them, paying their bills. And I'm not saying that we should never help someone by paying their bills, but when it becomes a chronic thing, then we're in, we're in a rescue mode. And when, when that happens, when we are the chronic rescuer and we've, we've uh, developed a relationship with a chronic victim, we're really doing a horrible disservice to that person. Because for one thing, what we're telling them is that, that they are a victim. I am saying to them, you need me to manage your life. You can't do this on your own. You're incompetent. You're incapable. And so that's what we're saying when we rescue people. And that's what most of the time, that's what victims are hearing. Problem is they become comfortable with that role. They've kind of survived in that role for a while, but, but, but it's not a healthy role to be in. What it does is then it reaffirms that role so that every new relationship they enter, they're looking to that other person to somehow be their rescuer. They're not taking responsibility in the relationship themselves. They are viewing themselves as incompetent for that. And you have to be the person that is the rescuer. That means you have to be the one that calls. You have to be the one who arranges things. You have to be the one who makes the suggestions. And then I'll go along with it. And if you don't call me, then I'm offended because you let me down. You didn't fill your role in this relationship as the rescuer. And so we, we, uh, we really impact their future relationships when we are involved in rescuing. Third thing, and I think most significantly, we hinder God's work in the person's life. We bring a continued confusion into their life by being the rescuer that enables them to continue to believe these lies that they are victims, that they are incompetent, that even with God's help, they can't do this. And so we cut short the work of God in people's lives. Uh, Galatians 6, 7 says this. It's just a real real basic biblical principle. Uh, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
For whatever one sows, they will also reap. All right, sowing and reaping is a part of life. This is how we learn. This is how we grow. The four-year-old touches the, the hot stove. And mean I'd stop them from doing that. I wouldn't let them burn themselves. But if the stove's just warm, they touch it and they say, ooh, I don't like that. I'm going to be careful that I don't touch that again. We respond to a friend in an unkind way. And that friend is upset with us. And then we have to deal with the consequences of that. We have to talk to the friend. We have to work through the problem. So the next time I'm in that type of situation, I'm thinking, wait a second. The last time I did this in this type of relationship, it didn't work out too well. And so what am I going to do this time? How am I going to, to treat this person in a more loving way this time? And so... If I step in and rescue, if like I step in and I solve the problem between the two people when they need to solve it themselves, then I am cutting short the work of God in both of their lives. And I'm not saying there aren't times that we need a third party to step in and help with a relationship. But in, in the victim, uh, rescuer, and bad guy triangle, what happens is the victim gets the rescuer and then the victim and the rescuer team up against the bad guy. And now, of course, no one wants to be the victim. Anybody here want to live a victim life? No, of course not. Anybody here want to be a rescuer? Maybe some of us might, might want to be rescuers, but uh, in, in, in the way I'm using it, it's not really a healthy thing. And how many want to be the bad guy? Not very many of us do. We? I mean, come on, bad guys. Stop being bad guys. That's, that's pretty simple. But problem is, half the time, the victim thinks the bad guy is really the bad guy, and he's really not, or he or she is really not the bad guy. They might be the healthy person. They, maybe all they did was say, no, you know, I can't come and help you Saturday because I've already planned to spend the day with my wife. And, or, or something of, of that nature. And the victim feels offended because every time they've asked in the past, that person has dropped everything they had planned to help them. And so now suddenly they're not available and the victim's offended and the victim goes to the rescuer and says, can you believe this? I was counting on him. I was counting on her to do this and they didn't do it. And man, I can't believe what's going on with them. Then the rescuer takes up a cause against that third person also. And so when they go to the third person, it is not like having a mediator there to help two people reconcile. It's like having two people that are mad at one going after the one. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, when we take up a cause for other people, when we rescue and we insert ourselves or we uh, in some way rescue, we are hindering that principle of sowing and reaping from having its benefit in their life. Now, I don't mean by that that we're going to cut ourselves off from the person. If someone comes and says, hey, I've got this tough relationship with so-and-so, you know them, and here's what they did. They offended me, and I'm hurt, and blah, 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 and on, and on, and on. I might not say, well, okay, I don't want to talk about this. Get away. Leave me alone. No, we listen and say, okay, now, are you just trying to, like, just get this off your chest right now, or are you asking me for help? 
Because if, if you want help, I'll give you some input right now. And if they, if they say, no, I don't want help, then I would probably say, well, then, boy, I, I just don't want to listen to it anymore. I'm sorry. But if they say, yeah, I want help, then I would say, okay, here's what you've got to do. You've got to go talk to them. And, and I'll even help you figure out what to say. But you've got to go talk to them. And then come back and let me know how it goes. And, and I'll help you work on round two if you need to. But you see, what we're doing there is we're putting that person who wants to play the role of the victim, we're putting them in a role of responsibility. We're saying, you can handle this. You know, maybe, maybe I've helped you out too much in the past. I don't know if I'd say those words. In some cases, I might. But you can handle this. I have confidence you can do this. I remember a, a, a famous preacher. Some of you know who Charles Stanley is. Um, his son, now Andy Stanley, has far eclipsed his father as far as um, pastoring and grow, church growth and, and impact. But when Andy was a kid, and um, I think he had a sister, if they had an issue, they would come to their dad and say, what should we do with this? And he would say, well, go pray about it and do what God tells you to do. And what, what was he doing with them? He was telling them, you can solve this. You are competent. You can handle this. In fact, you can hear from God. You might be eight years old. You might be 13 or 14 or whatever, but you can hear from God. You can find direction from God yourself. And, and at one point when Andy was 17 or so, he went to his dad and said, Dad, I want to be in this rock band. And at the time, his dad was a very, very well-known pastor having, and in those days, Having your son in a secular rock band would not have been a good thing for him as, you know, his reputation and all of his friends and everything. But he said to his son, he said, Andy, pray about it. Do what God tells you to do. So the son comes back and says, God told me it's okay to be in the rock band. So, well, okay, if it's okay with God, it's okay with me. I mean, that's, that's where the rubber beats the road, isn't it? That's where, that, that, that's where it really comes down to, I am trusting God to work in your life, okay? God is good. He cares about you, and even if, even if you're snowing me right now, I believe God's going to work in your life through this. And so Andy goes into the rock band, and he's in this rock band for, I don't know, two, three years, and finally... He comes back to his father and he says, Dad, I've got to, I, I quit the rock band. I've got to confess God never told me I could be in it. I made that up. I just wanted to be in it so bad. I just made that up and I lied to you. And, and he had repented before the Lord. And, but if the dad had stepped in at that point and said, Now, son, I know for a fact that God did not tell you you could be in that rock band. Where do you think they would be today? I mean, what would be happening? It, but... But not rescuing, trusting that God's going to work in the other person's life is, is really such a foundational key to all of our relationships. And so as, as we look at this today and just think through some of these issues kind of in a concluding uh, fashion for this whole um, series, I just want to take a few minutes and give you some uh, tips and some, some things to think about. And the first thing is this, that... We live in circles of relationship. Every, every relationship is not equal. Okay, uh, as the author of the book put it, 
all the way from my wife in the innermost circle and Jesus in the inner innermost circle. But my wife right there, number one, then family, children, um, uh, extended, you know, close friends, on all the way out, as the author put it, to Al Qaeda on one side, and he said Charlie Sheen's on the other. So um, I'm not sure about that, but uh, but there are layers of relationship, and it's that's a legitimate thing. Jesus had layers of relationship. He had one one John who was the apostle that Jesus loved. And then he had three, Peter, James, and John, who were in what would refer to as Jesus' inner circle. They got to go places the other guys didn't go. I've thought about that often. I thought, you know, what if I'm one of the nine? And we come up to this, you know, I'm following Jesus, and I'm seeing him do all these awesome things. And then I know we're, we're going to raise this dead girl Jairus is, there was a man at one point named Jairus. He came to Jesus and his daughter was dying and Jesus went with Jairus. And so all, all the apostles are going along. And so you're, you're one of the nine. I'm one of the nine, not one of the inner three. And I'm thinking this is going to be awesome. We're going to get to see Jesus raise this girl from the dead. I can't wait to see that. I'm just interested in seeing where he puts his hands. Does he touch her on the head? Does he grab her hands and shake her? What's he going to do? I want to see it. And then you get there outside the house and Jesus turns and he says, Peter, James, and John, you come with me. Everybody else, stay out here. Now, Jesus was willing to do that. So, so it was an okay thing to do. And if you're one of the nine, what you had to do was adjust your heart to that. You had to say, okay, you know, if this is the role I fill, then that's okay. That's okay because, I, you know, this is what God's called me to, to be one of the nine, not to be one of the three. And I'm going to be happy with that. And, I, and I'm going to yield my life to God in, in that role and be content with that. But you and I can recognize that there are layers of uh, responsibility. Someone I bump into and I find out that they're having car problems I might just say, man, can I pray for you? Jesus, provide, provide for him. And, and I know the Bible says that if we just pray for people and we don't actually meet their need, but that's a different context here. What this context, what we're talking about is you can't meet everybody's needs. You can't do it. And so this person that I barely know, I'm going to say, man, that's tough. I'm sure something's going to happen. I'm sure you're going to figure that out. I'll pray for you that, that you meet the right people. Okay, if it's someone that is uh, on staff at the church, I might respond differently. Or if it's one of, one of you that, that I've gotten to know through serving together, I might respond differently. If it was one of my kids, I might drop what I'm doing. I might cancel my plans for Saturday and go help them fix their car. Now, that doesn't mean that that person that's distant in distant relationship, that doesn't mean that I'm never going to cancel my plans on Saturday to go help them. Okay, you follow this? I mean, it might be that Jesus is going to put that in my heart to do, and if that's the case, I'm going to do it. But I have to have the ability to say no, because if I don't have the ability to say no, then I never truly say yes. Does that make sense? If I can't say no, then I'm never really saying yes. All I'm saying is whatever. 
You're in charge of my life. What am I doing Saturday? Is that what we're doing? Okay, whatever. You know, because I'm afraid if I say, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to spend Saturday working around the house. Or if I'm going to say, you know, Saturday's my day off and I'm not planning on getting up early. Danny Silk gives an illustration in here of someone that says, hey, can you help me move Saturday? And um, he says, uh, or hey, can you help me move? And he says, yeah, I can help you move. Well, how about Saturday morning? Well, Saturday morning, my son has a basketball game at 10 o'clock. Well, we'll make it at 6 o'clock then. Well, I was, it was my day off. I was planning on not getting up at 6 o'clock on Saturday morning. Oh, well, okay, we'll make it 6.30. But by the way, bring your truck because we don't have a truck. And make sure you fill it up with gas because I'm low on cash. And so this person just goes through the motions of that and they end up saying whatever. And they end up going along with it and then later becoming upset and angry because they know they're being taken advantage of. But the real problem is they haven't learned how to say no. And so um, the key thing is this. In realizing that there are layers of relationship, it's okay to say no. It's okay to say no even to someone in the intimate circle. It is. But... Uh, being sensitive to the Lord, what God's leading. God's going to break in and he's going to say, do this even though you've never met this person before. And that's okay. And we do it and we're joyful because the Lord's leading us to do that. But we need to know this. The closest circle of intimacy needs to be Jesus filling our hearts up. Because if he's not filling our hearts up, then then we're just like a sinkhole waiting to collapse. You know, all these sinkholes, you know, like our, my, my sister-in-law is here from Florida. Karen, stand up and wave at everybody. <laughs> Everyone welcome Karen, Lori's sister. She lives in the land of sinkholes, and um, you never know what's going to... But if, if I don't have Jesus filling my heart up, then internally I'm like a sinkhole. And, and at some point that's just going to collapse inward because there's nothing in there having the, the, the core strength to provide the foundation. And so we have to know that Jesus wants to be intimate with us. In fact, in Revelation 3.20, I'm going to read this verse to you. Jesus said this, Revelation 3.20. This is often used as an invitation to salvation. And, and it can be that, but I think it's more than that. I think it's an invitation to intimacy. And so it's an invitation to any one of us. And he's saying... Uh, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You've seen the pictures, haven't you, of Jesus standing at a door. There's no handle on the outside of the door. It can only be opened from the inside. And I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And so the idea here is Jesus wants us to welcome him into the innermost parts of our hearts. And this idea of dining is intimacy. It's closeness. That's, that's, that was a cultural, to have a meal with someone was a sign of acceptance and love and closeness and hospitality. And so Jesus is inviting each one of us into intimacy with him. And so we press into intimacy with Jesus first. And as we do that, as we press into intimacy with him, then we find the ability through his strength in us to trust God with our relationships. That's just a key point here. Trust God with your relationships. Uh, there's a verse in Proverbs sixteen seven. I think is up there. 
Okay, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, when I first read that verse, it just struck me that he, he's using a, um, like a form of speech here where if that's true, if even my enemies are at peace with me, then think about my close relationships. And so he's saying if a person walks in intimacy with God, intimacy with Jesus, then even my enemies, people that, that are opposed to me, are going to see me in a different light. And potential is then for them to, to, to be at peace with me. And if that's the case, then think about the people that I know and love and they love me. So we can trust God with our relationships. I don't have to try to... In fact, we need to recognize we can't manage our relationships. We can't control because we can't control other people. We can't control how that other person is going to respond. I'm only responsible for how I'm going to respond. And if Jesus is just living right here and, 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 and he's moving in my life, then I can, I can respond the way he did. I can keep my love on. But part of that is realizing I can't control you. I can't control the outcome for you. And I don't want to rob you of the experience of sowing and reaping. And so I shouldn't even try to control you because that's really what a rescuer is trying to do. Trying to control other people's lives so that they don't have problems. Because if you have that problem, it's going to mean, think about this, you have a kid, teenager. You have that problem, it's going to mess my life up. I'm going to be unhappy. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be fulfilled. I'm going to be a bad parent, but beyond that, I'm going to have to do this, this, and this to make up for all the mess you're making. And so it's really tough. I, I remember talking to a parent once, and um, parent is talking about, forcing their kid to do uh, his homework. And it's like a junior or senior in high school. And I said, well, okay, like over and over and over. So, so what's going to happen if he doesn't do it? He'll flunk. Okay, so then what's going to happen? He won't graduate. So I said, so then what's going to happen? Well, that'd be horrible. And well, whose problem is this? Whose problem is it? Well, it's my problem. Well, is it really? Why is it your problem? Well, because I want him to move out someday. <laughs> I'm making some of this up, okay, but it's very true to life. That part didn't actually happen, but let's, let's just say the whole thing's made up. It's not about a person. But it's my problem because I want him to move out someday. Okay, that is your problem, but this isn't the way to solve it. It's his problem if he doesn't graduate. It's, it's, it's going to be his problem when it comes to the point that you're telling him he has to pay rent to live in your house or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's, uh, it's wrong to let your kids live with you or anything like that. You understand that, don't you? But just as an illustration, um, we own our own problems. We have to be able to define whose problem is it. And if it's your problem, then I've got to trust God to work in your life and that means I've got to be obedient to God also. And that might and, and most certainly will mean I'm going to have to say no to some things and yes to some things. But I, I have to be able to say no in order for my yes to really have any meaning. But uh, we, we have confidence, and this is the foundation to everything, confidence in God's goodness, in his care for my life, and in his care for your life. And when I have that, then I can be at peace in my relationships. 
And, and I can love other people. And I can speak the truth in kindness and, and love. And so that first point is intimacy with Jesus. Second point, you're clear on God's purpose for you. We're just going to jump over that. Third point, uh, you have a pure heart towards others. This is important, that, that I have a pure heart. And uh, Jesus said of Nathaniel when he saw him, uh, indeed, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That word deceit uh, can be translated as guile. I like that word guile. There's no guile in him. In other words, uh, he, he doesn't have a cynical heart. He's not going around judging other people's motives all the time or expecting the worst out of other people all the time. He just has a good heart. And then that enables us to have an open heart towards others. And when we can have an open heart towards others, then the love can flow because Jesus is right there at the center. And then the love can flow. And I can say, no, you know, man, that sounds like a problem. What are you going to do about that? Well, I was going to come and ask you to help me do something about it. Well, dude, I can't help. I'm sorry. Well, why not? Oh, man, you know I love you. You know I'm 100% for you. But I helped you with this last week. And the week before that, I helped you with it twice. And then last month, three times. And I think, man, maybe I'm helping too much because you can handle this. I know you can handle this. I know you can do this. Now, I'd be happy to help you work through a plan as to what you're going to do, but I can't do it. I can't be the one that steps in. You, you can do this. You can handle this. You follow that? I mean, that's, it's not like just, no, I'm going to cut you off. I don't care about you. Oh, it's never that. It's love. It's concern. I care about our connection. I care about our relationship. I care about you. But, you know, in this case, I already have plans to take my wife out on Thursday night. Or I've already reserved Wednesday night just to sit and to read the Bible and pray. That's legitimate, you know. I mean, if you ever have anyone tell you that, don't judge them for it. Don't think, oh, you can read the Bible anytime. I need help now. No, they're setting their priorities. Honor that. And, and so it's like the author points this out. He says, we have to get used to telling ourselves what we're going to do. In other words, we need to plan ahead. And then we have to be free to tell other people what we're going to do. So it's not so much what I won't do as it is what I am going to do. And that's, that's just a good way to, to, to uh, you know, some people call these boundaries, like setting boundaries in your life. Have you ever heard that phrase? I, I don't like that term. That, he calls it that in the book. But to me, boundaries are like drawing a line in the sand. And where I grew up, that, you know, that was all about, you step over that, something bad's going to happen. And so I, I don't like to think in terms of saying, well, I'm setting boundaries in my life. For one thing, if someone says that to me, that means I'm setting priorities in my life and you ain't one of them. And that's okay, but I'd like to hear that a little bit nicer way. You know, if, if, if you're trying to, hey, I'm really trying to get my life more organized because my life's been really, I've just been really running like crazy. And, and so I'm planning my week out and I have plans for that time. And so, man, you know, another time maybe I can do that. Another time maybe I can help you move, but I have plans for that time slot right now. 
That's, I, to me, that's a much gentler way to say no. But uh, sometimes it just has to be no. But to, to state it in, in those positive terms, I think, is something that maintains the relationship and, and helps the relationship to stay strong. Um, okay, so... In the Old Testament, uh, Moses, the leader, nation of Israel, they've, they've, been, they've come out of Egypt. Now they're wandering around in the desert. And for these two million people, Moses was the only one hearing disputes and making judgments. So can you imagine that? Like say he has a church of two million and he's the only counselor. And, every, and that's all he does all day long is sit and listen to problems. So his father-in-law, Jethro, comes into the scene and says, Moses, what are you doing? You, you know, I mean, are you open to some input here? Because I have some insights for you. So Moses says, okay. And Jethro says, dude, you're killing yourself. And, and by the way, you're ignoring my wife, you're my daughter, your wife. And, and you're not taking care of her like you promised me you would. And what you need to do, if, you, if you're open to this, can I give you my suggestion? And Moses says, yes. So he says, here. You need to go throughout the whole thing and appoint wise people for every tribe, and they are going to be the ones that judge what's happening. And so you're not overloaded any longer. And so Moses saw the wisdom in that. I mean, you think about this. A guy like Moses couldn't see that, that he was going to burn himself out by trying to solve everybody's problems. And so he gets this wisdom from his father-in-law, and he makes all these changes. But then picture this. Joe comes, who's known Moses for years, and he's brought several disputes before Moses. And he comes, he says, hey, I've got to see Moses. You've know, got this problem going on. And he's told, um, sorry, man, can't see Moses. Why not? Well, because you, you, you are now, this, this is your judge over here. You have to go see um, Sarah. She's, she's your judge, or Josiah's your judge. Well, why can't I see Moses? I've known Moses for years, and now you're telling me I can't come in and see him? I can't come in and talk to him? And so my point with that is that anytime we start making wise decisions like that, uh, we're going to receive some pushback. There's going to be pushback, but it just has to be, dude, sorry, you know, just can't do it. You know, you know this guy was killing himself. He can't meet with everybody. We need your support right now. We need your help to bring this whole thing into order. You're a leader. If you happily go to Josiah to be your judge, if you, and then you start telling other people what a great job Josiah did, that's going to help, man. That's going to really help the whole system. And so it's not just saying no, but it's helping the person to, you know, to redirect, to understand. But um, one of my points here, which I'm going to jump to, is don't feel the need to justify yourself and over-explain, okay? Uh, and, so, and I jump to that point because some of the things I'm saying could lead you to that. Uh, you don't do that. You, you give the, the facts, you listen, respond, but don't like, oh boy, you know, I sure wish I could come and do that for you, and I'm so sorry I can't. And you just need to understand that if I don't do this, you know, this, this, and this are going to happen. No, it's as simple as, look, I'm bringing my life into order. 
And I've, and I've already made the decision that this is what I'm doing at that time. And so I can't do that and just leave it at that. And when we do that, then we're trusting God's working in your life. You know, I know you're going to solve this. God's working in your life and you're going to be okay. So that's all I have to say about that. And um, I'm going to invite Lucas to come back up. By the way, this book, Keep Your Love On, it is worth buying. It is worth reading. It'll take you through these things in a way that you can chew on them all week long. So um, just pray blessings on everyone here and all your relationships in this new year. So Lucas, come on up.